What's up, guys? This is Patrick Madmore coming to you live from Silicon Valley. It is a sunny, bright blue day here in Silicon Valley, probably right mid-70s. It's all good, not too hot, not too cold. Uh, you know, this is another episode of Madmore Stories, and I am particularly excited about this one because the person that I am going to introduce you to uh, is a, a close friend, somebody that I worked with for a while, just an amazing human being. Um, you know, and, and an incredibly talented guy. He uh, He's a graduate from UNC, uh, already has had a marathon career, including stints at top brand name companies and been featured in, in the press multiple times at, at a very young age, uh, both for his success and also for his personal talent and music, which was something I was not that aware of, to be honest. I'm sure he must have told me at some point. But, you know, I, I just had a blast, you know, researching a guy who had already known and learning a whole bunch of cool stuff about him. Uh, he's one of the few guys I know who's actually managed to balance a thriving and amazing career with one of his biggest passions, which is music. Uh, started his career as a production assistant at Live Nation and since then has had a pretty remarkable professional ride that's seen him work at prestigious companies ranging from Goldman Sachs to Google to Airbnb and now he's a VP at Sonos. Uh, by the tender age of 23, he had already begun a career that took him from Goldman to Google and even been mentioned on CNBC for his musical talent while he was at Goldman. And we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit more about that with him shortly. Uh, most recently, he was promoted to Vice President of Product Marketing and Collaborations at Sonos. And earlier this year, was inducted into the prestigious Forbes 30 Under 30 list for his success and creativity to date. So I'm super stoked to be invited, you know, to talk with my friend, a former colleague and multi-talented all-around good guy, Alan Mask. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much, Patrick. It's, it's great to be here. It's an honor and privilege to be on the show and I appreciate your kind words and I'm excited to chat. Well, likewise, man. Look, I'm, I'm glad you were able to make the time for us because I know how super busy you are and you guys have had like product launches, and a whole bunch of stuff, you know, going on. So um, I'm glad we were able to connect. So, you know, just to get us started, Alan, you know, obviously we've known each other a long time, but I, I'd like to know kind of like the the background and, to, you know, to hear a little bit about you and how you got into uh, marketing and maybe a little bit more about your current role at Sonos. Yeah, for sure. You know, it's a, a heck of a question how I got into marketing. You know, it, it, it's been um, a pretty roundabout ride. And when I'm talking to folks, some of my, you know, mentees and even some of my mentors, just people that I'm fortunate, you know, to, to be connected to, um, I get that question a lot. And I always have to remind myself of how I got here. You know, they, they talk about how you, it's hard to connect the dots going forward. You can only connect them, you know, looking back. And I mean, it was almost accidental. And so, my, like, my career, like, the immediate part of my early career was actually spent mostly in finance. So, I worked at a private equity fund for a couple of years. And, um, was an analyst at Goldman Sachs, you know, as a, as a young Wall Street investment banker. And um, I got into that world because I had started a company some years ago called Vinyl Records um, with a co-founder. And it was a nonprofit record label um, that I started in Chapel Hill when I was a student at the University of North Carolina. And we were raising money for, for the business. And it was such a different model because we were a record label, you know, but we were actually a 5013, a nonprofit entity which in so many ways is, is a contradiction in itself. And so we were kind of building that company and, you know, it ended up becoming a university program. And throughout the process, writing grants and raising money, and just kind of running the business, I became super fascinated in, in running and leading early stage companies. 
so I started talking to a bunch of the investors and a bunch of the people that are advising us. And I was like, hey, how can I do this again? How can I be involved with entrepreneurship, you know, on both sides of the table? How can I, you know, get closer to what it means to shape um, these enterprises and, and see them through? And, you know, a lot of the guidance you're given is, you know, to, to go work on the transaction and, you know, go be a part of a group of investors and see what it means to put a deal together, see what it means to bet a company, see what it means to help build a leadership team. You know, and so I spent some time on the buy side of the private equity world, and then I transitioned over to banking so I could really get a better hold of the transaction of corporate finance, so, of mergers and acquisitions. And I was an analyst, um, I was a role as an analyst at Goldman Sachs, I was converted from my summer internship when I was in college. And I was there right around my first year or so, my now wife, and I got engaged. And I was in New York, and she was in San Francisco, and we kind of had to do the bi-coastal thing. And it came to a point where we were like, all right, well, we have to close this gap. So is it going to be a New York thing or is it going to be a San Francisco thing? And, I'm, and I think you remember this too, Matt Morgan. You know, I have a very strong Christian faith. And, you know, I just felt really called to not pull my wife out of the environment that she was in. You know, I had yeah. kind of like a divine drawing um, or, you know, attraction to the West Coast, if anything, so as not disrupt her and the great things that she was doing at Apple at the time. Yeah. And so I decided, hey, you know, I want to go to the to the West Coast. And I originally wanted to stay with the firm. There are a lot of people that, you know, think, oh, you know, banking is such a grind, banking is so hardcore, like lucky you, you're able to get out. But it was actually quite the contrary. Um, I loved finance. I loved working at the bank. I loved Goldman. It was a great firm. You know, I had a scholarship in college there. I was a summer intern there. It was a big part of my life. And I wanted to continue it if I could. Um, unfortunately, and I won't go into a lot of the nitty gritty details of it, um, the headcount that I had known that we had on the West Coast sounds like didn't really exist. Right. And so the opportunity I'd hoped for on the West Coast, at least with the firm I was with, I had other opportunities, of course. Um, I, I, I didn't want to stay on the street and not be at the bank that had raised me a sort. And so at the time, I had had an offer from Google. So there was an analyst, a former Goldman Sachs analyst who had gone to SP&A at Google, financial planning and analysis. Yeah. And when I was a summer intern, she and I, she was uh, my big buddy analyst at Goldman. And so she and I worked on an IPO together at EDMC, and we worked on a number of things. And she had tipped off one of the recruiters at Google to the fact that I had more in my background than finance. And Google at the time, on the sell side of the business, which you may remember, with an online sales, was kind of wrestling with this question. They had this big middle market portion of the business. And they had this idea is what if we could staff middle market clients on the advertising side the same way we do large cap clients? Could we then effectively graduate them and do away with the middle market and just have a more robust SMB offering and then have a high touch, you know, large cap client offering? So they built these little teams that were made of people with a bunch of different backgrounds and they were looking for folks that had, you know, kind of like corporate finance, investment banking, deal team like structures and experience. Yeah. Yeah. And so there's a former credit Swiss banker who was a recruiter at Google who gave me a call and I was like, I know you have more in your background. I know you're a creative person for music. I know that you're an entrepreneur as well. We have this interesting program, could be a good fit for you. And so I gave it a look, you know, took the took the job, went across the coast and um, was working in online sales for a bit and then that turned into um, our marketing role actually on, on your team. You know, yeah, you mentioned yeah. that we had worked together, <laughs> but the person who, who actually gave me my big break in marketing was you, Patrick Mork, Matt Mork. And I remember more than anything, I think you're lying, I'm not just saying this because we're on the podcast, but you are certainly one of the most influential people in my career, period. Because remember when I was coming over to the Google Play team from AdWords, I was a non-traditional candidate because yeah. I hadn't done marketing at Google before. And yeah. marketing at Google is such an elite group 
of really talented individuals, it's hard to break in. I mean, it should be just because there's so much interest. And so it was actually you. I remember to this day the email that I got that was like, you know, I think this is the guy and we're going to take a shot on him. And you did. And I came over to the team as an associate brand manager, um, working for Paolo, the Google Play brand, which you'll remember well, working on the Android brand and, and went from there to a more classic product marketing role and um, continued to do that for a bit and then went to lead marketing at Connect where you and I also both worked together and the rest is history. And so it kind of came from not having one opportunity going south and another one showing up and then of someone like you believing in me and taking a shot on me and the rest is, the rest is history. Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, it, it's amazing kind of like the directions in which life can take us at times. And, you know, I, it's like, obviously, you and I had worked together and I knew you and I remember those conversations. And I remember thinking to myself, you know, here's a here's a young guy with an enormous amount of talent, you know, really well spoken, very, very smart, really hardworking. But, you know, I it was funny because from our first conversations, I remember feeling that you had a knack for marketing. Right. And that's that's one of those things where, you know, sometimes in certain companies, and I think Google very much you know remains that way to this day. You know, you're given the opportunity to to make a hire from, you know, of somebody who is kind of non-traditional for that particular role. Um, but as a manager, you just feel that they're going to do a really a really good job at it. Right. And, and I think you, you proved to all of us kind of not not just at Google, but in your career continuing on it. You know, at Connect, you know, where you took a chance, obviously, in a startup and then going to Airbnb, that, that you could not only just hack it, but really excel at that. Um, you know, one one question I have for you, which, is you know, which has always intrigued me is, you know, when I work with people who are trying to make big changes in their careers, right, they're trying to make a big pivot or, you know, in some cases, they're trying to out make, outright make an enormous change in career, Um what was it like for you? I mean, when you made that transition from, from you know, the financial services side and, you know, the, the finance side to go into marketing. I mean, that must have been to some extent somewhat scary and somewhat daunting. Talk to us a little bit about how you confronted that change. Yeah, it's really hard, right? Because, like, it, it's definitely an against the grain move. It's kind of like a everybody else did you zag kind of move. And yeah. um, it was hard. And honestly, like, it's more than people think. I think sometimes I get credit for doing this really brave and bold thing. Towards it, you know, and in retrospect, like the revisionist historian in me would sure like to take credit for that. But at the <laughs> time, it was really it was really the best option I had. Right? Yeah. It's like one of the, the some of the guidance I, that you get in music school or from one of my music professors, one of my jazz professors, a guy named Jim Ketch. He always told us, you know, play the best instrument you could afford. Right. And so when I didn't have an opportunity to stay with the firm, I was looking at my background, what I could do, what opportunities were on the table, and I went for the one that looked the best. Now, there's yeah. a flip side to that. Um, I think there was an inner peace and an inner trust with the fact that I was and continued to try to groom myself and allow myself to be groomed more as an athlete, as like a business or a creative athlete more than anyone else yeah. or more than anything else. And so... While I kind of pride myself on having some specialties and, and some general skills too, I think at the end of the day, what I've realized from working in so many different industries is that all problems are more or less the same. Yeah. And you approach a lot of them in similar ways, whether it's as a marketer, whether it's as a financial professional, whether it's as a founder or as an entrepreneur. And at that point, I had been a touring musician. I had been an entrepreneur in a nonprofit environment. I had been a banker on an IPO. And so I yeah. realized you know what, there really is no reason for me to be afraid of this because at the end of the day, um, I feel like I can do anything the same way we all can, especially once we remove that fear. Yeah. And I'll give it a shot, give it everything I have, 
worst case, I'm going to learn something huge um, and be able to apply it down the road. And so I pulled the trigger and made it happen. Yeah, it's you know, and it's it's fascinating because you you definitely leapt in with both feet, right? And I remember those early days where you you were you're trying to find your feet and learning marketing kind of like on the fly as we were moving very fast. I mean, is there was there a particular thing like when you think of the confidence needed to kind of jump into an entirely new role like that and making that transition from finance to marketing? Was there a particular experience in your life or was there a particular skill set or a particular person? that really gave you the confidence to, you know, see this through sometimes when you had insecurities or when times got tough? Yeah, absolutely. And I think different people have played that role in my life at so many times, whether they knew it or not. I think for me, the thing that grounds me the most, I think it's most important to me in my life, my North Star is my faith. Right. And, you know, being reminded constantly that the, the way I think about my worth and my value in the world is so independent from... Um, my humanity is so independent from my brokenness is so independent from anything that I'll actually do here because I'm connected to, you know, a higher power. I'm connected to God's will and God's plan over my life. Right. Being reminded by my pastors, being reminded by my wife, being reminded by people that don't share the same faith that I have, but right. under the hand of that divinity, as I believe, I'm, I've constantly been reminded that, you know, that, that, that I'm enough, that it is going to be fine, that the victory has already been won, um, at least based on what I believe. And the rest is just give it your best shot, see what happens, and go from there. Yeah. So there have been plenty of people in the faith and people outside of the faith, like I said, whether they've done it or not, who at every stage have reminded me and encouraged me that I'm not defined by my successes or failures in this world, um, that this is important time spent, but that I shouldn't overthink one thing versus another. Yeah. Or I shouldn't think about my value or myself or my success in relative terms. I should think about it in absolute terms. Um, and that gave me a lot of confidence, just being reminded over the course of different managers, different bosses, different family members that, you know, if it doesn't work, like give it your best shot. If you leave everything on the field, then you left everything on the field yeah. and you move on from there if it doesn't work out. And so I tried to remind myself of that and I jump in head first and go from there. You know, one of the things that fascinated me is as I was researching you, and it's it's funny because you know it's like I, I you know I do some background research on everybody that I interview for the show, and you know in your case, on the one hand, I was kind of like, well, I don't need to interview this guy; I know him, right? So uh, there was that temptation to just like maybe be a little bit lazy and not do any homework, and then and then kind of like when I started just you know doing some searches on Google and kind of like looking at your background and your Facebook page and other things, you know, I, I learned a whole bunch of things about you, and you know I knew that. Um, you know, that music had played some part in your career, but, you know, I, I didn't realize, you know, how much of a part it was. Right. And I certainly didn't realize that it was kind of like you started really in music and then it led you into the world of business. Tell, tell us a little bit about that. Like, how did you get into music and, and you know, how did you get into rapping and kind of like why why is that so important to you? Yeah, that's a great question. And so I, I come from a family that has a lot of music roots, not necessarily in my immediate family, but, you know, or at least from my siblings and my parents. But my grandfather was a jazz musician. He was a pianist. And um, my grandmother, you know, I have family on my grandmother's side who um, one of my great uncles was the bassist for Count Basie. And um, someone else on my grandmother's side, one of my aunts was Ellis Marsalis, one of Marsalis' dad's um, piano teacher. And so... I just had a lot of deep music roots in my family. Both sides of my family all have all their roots in New Orleans. And so for me, I was always tuned to, um, to music in general. Just It was always close and near and dear to my heart. And um, I've always really worked on my writing. I was a journalism major in school, and writing was always really important to me. 
And there came a moment in high school where I had an English professor or English teacher um, who had been given an opportunity by an organization called Brave New Voices. The Brave New Voices is this group, it's like a youth arts group, and they have this product or this, you know, gathering called um, Youth Speaks. Or Youth Speaks is the organization, Brave New Voices was the actual event, excuse me. And basically what this is, it's a youth poetry slam. So it's a global poetry slam for different states and different parts of the world with kids that are under the age of 19. And so Chapel Hill, Chapel Hill High School, there was an English professor that was given an opportunity to field a team for North Carolina to take into the global night in her slam. And for whatever reason, I don't know what it was, I was just really moved to submit something. I'd never written a poem before, I had never written a rap or a rhyme or anything like that before, but I wanted to write this piece and just submit it, if anything, for me, not so much to be a part of the contest and competition. And I was selected to be one of six poets that were on this group, and we went to San Francisco. It was the first time I'd ever been to San Francisco. And I uh, saw a kid, you know, from the South, not having gone a lot of places in my youth, but um, I got a chance to, to see the big city and be a poet, and we competed really well. And then the next year, we did it again. I was on the team. We went to Harlem. We slammed really well there. And from there, there were a bunch of different bands and different groups who had invited me to kind of help them write some music and help them write some lyrics. And, you know, I had known some music theory and, you know, had, had, had played piano, you know, in high school and, then it kind of turned into this thing where I started like rapping and writing for different groups. And then I was a music minor in school. I was a jazz studies minor. Um, I started the record label, like I mentioned. So I just kind of serendipitously found myself surrounded by musicians and in the world of music. Yeah. And I gave myself an exercise some years ago when, when I first put my, my first album out. I told myself this after I kind of put things down with the record label. I said, I'll make an album, but I'll break every rule that I've ever set for an artist that I've managed, written for, or played with. And so I said, it's going to be 10 songs. I pick the number of songs ahead of time. I'll do every song with a different studio, which you don't usually do. I will not show any of the singers or the other rappers their part or the music until they come into the studio. It was like a creative experiment of sorts. Yeah. And the album did quite well, you know, in the Southeast and overseas. I had a lot of airtime and a lot of play. And um, so that kind of became the beginnings of my career as a solo artist, although my roots were in spoken word poetry and just being a student of jazz. And then just kind of finding myself one day with a pen at a piano surrounded by great musicians and that kind of being being the beginning of, of, of what hopefully will never end as a passion for and a knack for and a corner of my career for music. Yeah. And it's funny because, you know, then when I was doing the research, I came across this video clip on YouTube of you being mentioned as, you know, the, the, the rapper at Goldman. Right. And uh <laughs> <laughs> and that's kind of an example sometimes of how like personal passions can kind of like trip us up maybe at work. I mean, what can you tell us about that experience? Because obviously it seemed like initially they were really supportive and then maybe a little bit less supportive. What what what, what was that story? Yeah, you know, it, it's an interesting one. And so when I had gone to, to the firm, I released my first album like um, about a year or so before. And I just released the second album called Sweet Dreams. And at the time, I was really focused on being an analyst, so I turned down a couple of record deals, actually, to keep my job at Goldman. So I was a coach twice um, with my independent labels, with small contracts that would have been awesome. And I think about often whether or not I made the right decision, but I'm probably pleased that I did at the time. But music, again, I'm just saying that to say, you know, has always followed me, has always been a big part of my life. So yeah. when I went to the firm, I had just come off of a second release that March before that summer, and I had a lot of press inquiries. Right, like that's what happens, you know. Like talk about, you know, you had mentioned that I've had some some marketing inside of me. A lot of it came from when I was a musician, needing to market my own product. Right. And 
myself and you know, having my wife respond to some inquiries, some friends respond to inquiries, but I honestly wasn't doing much to promote the record. And somehow there was a reporter at CNBC who had known about my music and kind of turned it into this whole entire, like, human interest, personal interest, like, feature story. And it was around the time where investment banking, which has lost a little bit of its luster now, even since, you know, you know, even in the past 10 or so years. Yeah. And it just kind of caught on. New York, like, New York Magazine picked it up. The old book picked it up. New York Times picked it up. CNBC picked it up. And I honestly hadn't paid much attention to it because I was at my desk. <laughs> when it first came to my attention that, that we were getting all this press attention was I had gotten an email. I got a call at my desk. We had both at our desk. It was like a long time ago. God, back and in the I days. Called, I know. It's weird. <laughs> it was like, I that old. Like, <laughs> I got a call, a call at my desk from our PR team that was like, listen, you're going to be on CNN, um, on CNBC, excuse me, at like 11 a.m. Um, the outlet has asked for a comment. We've declined for you. Like, no further action. You know, stay tuned. And that wasn't them being malicious or evil. I'd be like, that's what our PR team here would do. So the PR right, team right. Say, hey, there's a story that's breaking. We have a heads up on it, which is good. Well, the firm has declined to comment, but you should be aware we've declined to comment. Stay tuned. And I remember getting up to my desk and walking over to the bathroom and everybody from my floor was standing by the TVs and this piece aired on CNBC about this Wall Street rapper. And I <laughs> up there and I see all these clips from some old shows and it kind of just like took off. And I had signed, you know, I, I was at the time licensed. I had a, I had a Series 79 um, general license and, you know, it was a known entity to the SEC and was sponsored by my firm. And, you know, there's certain rules, as you know, when you work at a public company and when you're privy to, to certain information, you know, it's within the right of, of any business or organization to say, hey, there's a conflict here, something we're going to ask you to not do. Right. And the firm wasn't super explicit about that at all, and I won't get into the nitty-gritty of the back and forth about what happened or what went down, but all in all, they were supportive of, of um, me being a musician. Um, they understood that there was, at times, a, a conflict with my schedule, with the information I had access to, with some of the reporters that were spending time with me. Um, and so it ended up being the obvious thing to do to, to mute it a little bit. Yeah. But it certainly wasn't an evil or a malicious thing. If you look at David Connell, and we just took over, you know, for, for Lloyd Blankfein, who was the CEO, and I was there. I mean, he's a DJ. Right? Yeah. You look all over the news, people are celebrating the fact that he's DJing nightclubs here and there. And so I think they've become more used to the idea of their younger people, their, their millennial generation, being a bit more um, inter- or multidisciplinary. Than you know, than the bankers of old. But, yeah. So they've certainly become a bit more chill about it now with a lot of the artists there. But at the time, it was such a new thing; they didn't know how to handle it. Yeah. It just made the most sense for me and for them to mute it a little bit. But it obviously didn't go away, and they've obviously changed their position from it. Look at just you know who's running the shop now. Yeah. Yeah. No, it's it's fascinating, and it, and I can imagine that back then it could have been a little bit awkward, and you know. Uh, for you, it must have been somewhat of a surprise because, like you said, it wasn't something that was planned or orchestrated. It's just like, you know, sometimes the news, they like to create a story necessarily where there isn't one just because it's interesting. And it's a different way to look at people, you know, who have careers in, in firms like Goldman. Right. It's uh, it's pretty it's pretty interesting. And so, you know, one of the things that struck me and I guess, you know, obviously I I, I played a role in this, but I was curious about your thoughts, you know, in 2014. You know, you'd, you'd had a pretty successful run at Google. Um, and then all of a sudden you're approached by a small startup called Connect, you know, which which, of course, I was involved with. 
And, you know, it, it turned out to be kind of like a rough ride, right? We, we both kind of remember what happened there. And I was just curious kind of, you know, why initially take the leap into the unknown, you know, from a, a pretty successful career to a startup? And also curious about what did you learn from the experience at Connect? What did you take away from that? Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's a great question. And, and I think there are a couple things there. I think first, I had to make a decision about whether or not I was going to stay at Google. I think some advice that, you know, I've gotten and advice that I've given and I've stand by, you know, I think this is like a rough framework. Is that like after a year, you know, you need to be there for at least a year. But after a year, you're free to leave. After two, you don't owe anybody anything. But after four, you need to have a really strong thesis for why you're still there. Right. And I've gotten to the point where I hit my four years. And I just stopped growing. And it wasn't because Google didn't have growth opportunities. I learned a lot and grew a lot there. And I was really well trained there, which I'm eternally grateful for. But I got to the point where the, the team that, you know, I was on, you know, when you and I were on the same team, our whole market globally was, you know, you could probably count on two hands. And at that point, we had really ballooned and we had grown a lot and roles were fragmented and the business was stable. We had crossed the billion dollar mark, which was a big deal for us. I mean, we went from being, a startup where I was a young athletic person who was learning a lot from everybody working on a ton of different things to someone who to perform really had to be in a tight box in a very specific silo um, on a rinse and repeat kind of kind of workload. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't I don't say that to be a shot at, at my leaders there or anything. I mean I, it, it would have been I still would have liked to hope I, I would be having a great career if I would have stayed. But I just felt like there was something more. And you remember when I first started working with the Connect guys, I actually was an advisor um, for about a quarter or so because we couldn't afford to pay anybody. Yeah, and yeah. The team was what, 10 or 11 people, and we raised a series A, and there was an opportunity for me to come in full time. And I just didn't have a great reason to say no. Yeah. And I toiled over it and prayed over it a lot and just wasn't sure. But at the end of the day, I was like, you know what? No matter what, whether this is a huge success or a terrible failure, I'm going to learn and grow a lot, and that's what the premium is on in my career, yeah. competition and seeing different things, exposure, and man, even though the connecting ended differently than I think we all would have wanted it to do, that will probably forever be the best, most rich, most growth, um, most growth developing, or 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 kind of like growth leading year of my career. Yeah. And so there were ups and there were downs. There were times where we had the cash we needed. There were times where we missed payroll. Right. Like there's no secrets about that. I think you're close to it as well as the, as well as the other guys and gals were part of that venture. But you know, it was definitely was a leap of faith, and it was one that I take over and over again. Because even though I landed in a different spot than we thought, the people that you meet, the questions that you're faced with, the time that you have to put in, um, the bravery you have to draw from is just second to none. Um, it grows you up. It exposes you in so many ways, and I can't. I, I'm eternally grateful um, to you and to the leadership team there, and to the world, and to God just for giving me that opportunity because that will always be something that I look fondly back on, even though at the time it wasn't always easy. Yeah, yeah. It was, I mean, it was it was it was tough. I, I remember it too. You know, I mean, I was never full full time part of the organization, as you know, but you know. Startups are always difficult, and of course, when the rules of the game change, you know, and when things change in terms of the technology, in this case, you know, was it was the um, the APIs, you know, that uh, that we were using with Facebook changed. I mean, uh, you know, the business can change overnight, right? I mean, it's uh, when you look back at that year with Connect, is there like one, are there one or two kind of key learnings that you take from that? Yeah, there are a couple. I think the first thing is the world doesn't always work 
the way your experience would tell you it does. Right. And so as a marketer at Google, right, there's so much there's so much that you kind of take for granted. Having big budgets, there's so much you think through launching a product is not all about advertising. Right? Like there's there's like marketing as a discipline is infinitely more dynamic than I ever thought it could be. And so that was one big lesson. It's like going into another company or into a new adventure, certainly your experience informs um, what it is that you take to it, but it certainly doesn't define what your experience there will be like. And so I think that was the first piece with not taking, you know, don't, don't, don't take for granted, right, that something's going to be a certain way versus not because every adventure is totally different in its own way. It's as different as people are from each other. It's as different as places are from each other and so it was really humbling in that sense right to manage your expectations and go and realizing that you're always going to be in a take the hill position versus the set the hill position which is um an easy default to get to especially if you come from from a lot of the great places with the great talent i've been fortunate to, to work in and um, i think the one of the other things that i learned too is that like business is dynamic right like as stable as you think it is it's not as stable as you think it is. Sometimes it's more stable, right? Yeah. Like as bad of a business as you think you have, sometimes it actually is better than you think and vice versa. Um, things are just unpredictable. And at the end of the day, when you have tough problems to solve, what matters is like what you can contribute to them, not where you come from. Right. And so like I'd say another lesson would be that business is dynamic and you are as good as the contributions that you can make to growing that business more other than the sum of whatever experience you have or whatever pedigree that you bring to the table. Yeah. Because you know this just as well as anyone. When the doors closed, the shades are pulled down, and you're with a group of smart people, and you're trying to solve a problem that's never been solved, it doesn't matter where you went to school. It doesn't matter what company you just came from. It doesn't matter the last product you launched. What matters is what you have to contribute to answer that question on the table and how you guys can work together to make it happen. Yeah. And so I think I learned a lot of resilience. I think I learned a lot of humility. I think I learned a lot of athleticism. I think I got a lot of repetition um, that I would never have gotten anywhere else. And again, even though it ended in a different place than we thought, I would never trade one single day um, of that experience for anything. It'll always be the defining year of my career in terms of um, just the, the, the grace and the peace um, and the open-mindedness that I think I walk away from it with. Yeah. Yeah, that's fascinating. That's fascinating. I mean, like, what? how do you – what advice would you give people – because you made a really interesting point, right? When you were talking about, you know, spending a year, then two years, then four years, and then, you know, coming to the four-year mark at Google, then realizing, you know, man, I'm not really learning anything anymore. I need to push myself outside of my comfort zone. And, and I, was, I was fascinated by that because, you know, I followed kind of a similar path, as you know. And, uh, you know, sometimes look back on that and you can question whether you made the right decision or not, but that's kind of like, you know, a fait accompli, right? There's no point really in looking back on it. But I also come across people who are still at places like Google five, six, seven, ten years in, and you don't necessarily see that sparkle in their eyes anymore. You don't necessarily see that passion anymore. And I'm just curious, like, what advice would you give people in that situation where clearly they've overstayed the amount of time that they should spend in a particular place or company or role. And, you know, it's a mixture of maybe being too comfortable or being too fearful or being too afraid financially of the repercussions to stretch yourself into a next phase. What, what would you tell those people? Yeah. I mean, as a, I know a lot of those folks as well. I think a couple of things. The first thing is, it's, it's never too late. You're not trapped. 
and golden handcuffs come off. Um, not all three of those things apply to everybody, of course, but yeah. I think there are a lot of folks that kind of get caught in this self-fulfilling prophecy of how am I going to get out? Or they're trying to jump into the double dutch line, but they don't really know how to make the right entry or the right exit. Yeah. And so I think the first thing is realizing that you are like you are in control. Of, I mean, to the extent that we can't be as human beings, like you are in control of your career. Like no one is going to think about or own your career the way that you will, and you constantly have to be sober about that um, because it goes both ways, right? Like the, you could feel more secure than ever, and then go through a round of layoffs and be on the wrong side of that, or you could feel totally loose. And without a job, or, or, or totally loose, and, and without an opportunity that's going to be that's going to have any longevity, and end up being in that place for five, ten years past when you thought. Like to my earlier point, business is dynamic, and so at some point you just have to kind of grab what you control and realize that no matter what, you can always get up, you can always move, you can always go. Um, anything that's keeping you from making any sort of, of move um, is a construct, um, or is more you than anyone else. So that's the first piece. You're realizing that you're not actually stuck, that you are, that you do have agency, that you are the agent in your career, and that you have to decide to do something with that or not. The second piece I'd say is you have to know what you're solving for, because it's not a terrible thing to stay at Google for 10 or 15 plus years. It just depends on what you're trying to do. Right. If you want to get really great at one thing, or if you want to be a really core part of one team, or if you want to really see how a business, how a certain part of the business grows over time, or if you really care about working with the most talented people. Or you really care about working on a certain type of product, right? Like there are plenty of reasons somebody would spend their entire career someplace. But you have to figure out what you're solving for. And for me, I'm the kind of person that is really, really hungry for growth. Um, because I want to get to the point where I can spend a lot of time advising and spend a lot of time teaching. That's ultimately where I'd like to, where I'd like to get similar to what you're doing now. And I know to do that, to be valuable in that environment, I have to have seen and done a lot of things. I have to have made a lot of mistakes so that at some point I can help people make new mistakes, not old ones. Right. And so as soon as I got to the point where I was seeing stuff over and over again, where I was able to kind of like fall asleep on certain tasks and still perform, um, it became uncomfortable because it became too easy. And I was in a season of life, especially the earlier years of your career, as you know, they really count because that's where you develop a foundation. Yeah. There are plenty of people that I've worked with and managed to see over the years who are quite senior that were just never really well trained and they didn't have rich, like, youth years in their career yeah. and they pay for it because they become unteachable um, because they, they become like unchangeable and so for me the premium on these years even that I'm in now is just growth like how can I maintain that healthy dose of paranoia how can I stay a little scared because I don't know how to do this thing as soon as after a hundred things hit my desk there's not one of them that I haven't already done it's time to, to do something else that doesn't mean you always jump ship doesn't mean that you always leave it means that you look for a new opportunity internally, or you right. find a way to, to flex a new muscle or a new skill within the role that you have, or maybe you leave. And so I'd say two big pieces would be, like, know that you're in control to the extent that we all can be, and figure out what it is that you're solving for and solve for that. And it's going to be different for every single person. Yeah, it's, that's fascinating advice because, you know, it's like the one thing that I was – it's kind of surprising, and I, and I don't I don't criticize them, right, because I think it's so true what you said about the first part about being in control – you know, when I when I made my decision to leave Google in 2012, um, you know, and I and I looked briefly around for different opportunities, I, I was surprised that there wasn't like more of a structure in place for more senior people to really retain them, right, or provide opportunities for growth. And 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 you know, I, my learning was a little bit similar to yours in the sense that you come to the realization at the end of the day that you are the steward of your career, 
right? You are the one who makes the decision of where you're going to go next or where you're not going to go. And, you know, the decision to just drift, which a lot of people do, is is a decision, right? It's, it's, it is conscious choice at the end of the day. Um, and it's fascinating because, like, on the one hand, I don't know if you just saw this, but the guys at Upwork, you know, just had just, you know, quietly filed to go IPO. And, you know, Upwork is obviously kind of like one of the poster childs of the gig economy because it's all about freelancers and helping freelancers connect with companies and what others to get work. And it's just kind of accelerating that trend of people working independently. But um, but it's interesting as well, because it sounds like that skill set that you've developed of being the steward of your own career, if anything, is becoming much more important to your generation, given how fast people's jobs change and how fast you know, changes in the economy and industry are happening, right? For sure. They, they, they definitely are. And like, we have to be prepared for that, be ready for that because our companies just aren't taking care of us the way that like our parents and their parents' companies once did. Right? Yeah. Like you don't have a lot of tension. Like you barely even have a lot of 401k matching, right? It's yeah. like we're in this age of the business is going to get what it needs from you, which is fine because that, that is the, the goal of the firm in some ways. But at the same time, we have to offset that by making sure that we're getting what we need from it. Like I tell people all the time, especially at Google, I was just on a panel of, of APMMs of Associate Product Marketing Managers the other day. And one of my big pieces to them was Google's going to get what it needs from you. There are no secrets about it. I'll say that on or off the record. You yeah. have to make sure you're getting what you need from Google. And that's why Google has all the perks and all the amazing programs it has. It's up to you to take advantage of them. Learning and development, right? It's like even on my team now, like we, one of the awesome perks about Startup, which is an amazing place, is that we give people an allotment to kind of grow themselves personally in terms of education. And you'd be surprised how few people really use it. Yeah. And now that we started to promote it more, we have a lot of people who are taking more advantage of it, but so much of people's growth and development, they have to own. You know, one, and another piece of advice I'd give is when you're at these companies, figure out what they specialize in and figure out how you can learn some of that. Like one of the awesome things that was that, that um, was helpful for me at Google and especially at Connect was learning how to design. Yeah. When we got to Connect, you remember we had one designer. A lot of our communications design, a lot of our writing, like I had to do that myself. And so learning how to work my way around Photoshop and Illustrator, learning how to sharpen up my writing for different audiences or for different parts of the product or for different use cases. Like people need to get into the mindset of developing themselves because that's how you offset the company getting what it needs. And that's how you receive what the company is giving to you. So as soon as that runs out, you got to make a call about whether or not that's acceptable or not. And for some people, it totally is. And for some people, it totally isn't. And by the time you realize that, you want to make sure you're making your way on to the next thing or you could waste precious time because opportunity cost, as you know, in any career is really high. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, look, this is uh, this has been fabulous, uh, Alan. I really appreciate it. It's been, it's been great to catch up with you. It's also been great to be able to ask you questions that I feel I should have asked you five years ago. <laughs> Um, so, and, and, and it's also been full of surprises, you know, like, as I said, as, as I went through, um, the process of kind of like learning more about you as a person and, and, you know, uh, about your passions with music, it's been super cool. Uh, just to kind of like wrap up, um, here before we, before we're finished, uh, just kind of like have five kind of like, you know, uh, quick tip kind of questions. I always ask people, so it's just like typically one or two word answers, uh, for our audience. Um, so kind of diving into that, what's what's been the most influential book that you've read uh, recently? Oh, that's a good that's a good question. And I'll give you a somewhat atypical one. There's a book called Drinking Distill, which uh-huh. is written by a famous bartender and mixologist up in Portland. And I don't love the book just because of it. The whole entire book is basically about decorum and drinking. 
and it's not so much the subject matter that I think is amazing, it's how it's written. It has the most beautiful, prosaic, casual, human approach to communicating simple ideas um, that better, more better than I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And so it's an incredibly quick read, under 30 pages, um, but the style is, is unbelievable. I draw from it all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and who do you go to typically for career advice? You know, this is that's another good one. I tend to go to people that are not in my industry. I tend to go to people that work on or think through things that have nothing to do with what I'm doing or where I'm going. I find that gleaning how they creatively solve problems based on their craft um, is so fascinating. So they give you some examples. Chefs, um, athletes, coaches, um, professors, you know, people who are solving similar problems or thinking about different things but approaching them from a totally different angle. Just because I get such fresh perspective and I'm able to bring some of myself and some originality to it because yeah. I have to take whatever spin they give and apply it to my life. What's the one skill you would like to develop next? Oh, develop next. Let's see. I really think, I really want to, it's, it's, it's a hard thing to say because it's a, it's a skill that I kind of have now, but I really like to press like motion design. Like I have some some design skills, but I really want to get into a world where I'm able to work more with motion. So that's motion graphics and film. You know, I have some experience in 2D design. I have a lot of experience with writing, but that's one area that I haven't been able to really kind of see things through. And so normally a typical answer, typical answer is learn how to code, which is important to me, which I've been spending time on. But I think for me, getting into film and post-production and motion graphics would just be really fun creatively. All right, cool. Um... Are you more likely, I mean, and I think I already know the answer to this question, but would, would you recommend people to kind of dive into something that is their passion or find ways to test options around building a career for that passion? Honestly, I don't think they're mutually exclusive. I would do both. I think to the extent that you can, you know, sometimes it's ready, fire, aim. Sometimes it's ready, aim, fire. If there's something that you find that wakes you up, that lights you up and you can afford and you have the support to go do that thing, go for it. But at the same time, that's going to be a test and learn itself. But if you're in a position where you have to be a bit more conservative or you can't just jump out on a limb, you know, you slowly build it up until it makes the most sense. So it's going to depend on the person, the season, the part of the world, the stage. But I'd say if you could do a little bit of both, like remember you're going to learn from both, um, let, your, let your situation inform where you start. And last but not least, um, do you have a particular forcing function or is there a forcing function you would recommend for people to get out of their comfort zone? In terms of what would make them get out of their comfort zone or what would push them to that point? Yeah. I'd say find the thing that, that you are most afraid of, figure out and, and go to it and figure out why you're afraid of it. If you're afraid of it because you should be, fine. If you're afraid of it because you don't know how to do something or because you're worried about how it looks or because you think you're in, you're insecure, if there's something internal that makes you afraid of anything opportunity-wise, run at that as hard as you can until you've overcome that fear because you'll learn a lot about yourself and you'll learn a lot about that thing you're afraid of. This has been awesome. Listen, Alan, uh, again, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, Alan Mask, VP of Marketing at Sonos. Uh, it's been a real pleasure. Learned a lot. It was awesome to catch up with you. Uh, where can people find you if they're interested in knowing more about you or following you or knowing more about your career? Yeah, for sure. They can follow me on Twitter. My Twitter is just at Alan Mask. And 
You can also hit me up on, on LinkedIn, but one of those two places is, is a great place to start. I'm always available, always happy to help. People like you have, do, and will continue to make time for me as needed, and I'd love to do the same thing for anybody else I can contribute to. And thank you, Patrick, for having me. You know, you have been um, a huge driver in my career and will continue to be, and we are lifelong um, friends and family. So I'm looking forward to hearing from you soon. Yeah, likewise. Thank you so much uh, again for everything, Al. It's been it's been really good to catch up, and I wish you all the uh, all the future success at Sonos and wherever you do. And you know, at some point, looking forward to see if you release another album. Um, but you know, to all the listeners out there, this is uh, Patrick Mork uh, signing off from uh, Mad Mork Stories. Don't forget to subscribe to the uh, podcast if you get a chance. Uh, we're also available on Facebook.com/slash Mad Mork-Stories. Uh, and, you know, you can always read more interesting posts about careers, marketing and startups at uh, www.madmork.com slash blog. I wish you all uh, an amazing day and I hope you enjoyed this podcast. And that is it for me uh, signing off from Mad Mork Stories.